0: Our story begins here, with coffee. Is this coffee? No. This is coffee. Good coffee. Welcome to Prerequisites, a podcast that features conversations with scholars in the Michigan State University Department of English. And this episode features Professor Julian Chambliss in conversation with me, your host, Dr. Zach Kruzy. I've been really fortunate to know Julian for uh, a number of years. Um, We first became friends when he arrived here at MSU. We worked really closely together uh, on the Michigan State University Comics Forum, and we've also put together a number of um, exhibits on comics here at MSU. Uh, He's an incredible scholar. And uh, he has a joint appointment in the history department and is the Val Behrman Curator of History at the MSU Museum at, of course, Michigan State University. If, you, if you're playing along at home, if you ding a bell every time uh, I say MSU or Michigan State University, it, it gets kind of exciting. It's just like a fun little thing you can do at home with your friends. Um, anyway, in addition to uh, Julian's work in the English department and, uh, and in history, he is a core participant in the MSU College of Arts and Letters Consortium for Critical Diversity in, a digital, age, in digital Age Research, which is uh, more easily known as CEDAR, and his research interests focus on race, identity, and power in real and imagined urban spaces, and his uh, writing has appeared in publications like Phylon, Freeze, Rhetoric Review, and Boston Review, and as a Interdisciplinary scholar he's designed museum exhibitions, curated art shows and created public history projects that trace community identity and power in the United States. so so in a nutshell that's who Julian is. And in this conversation you're going to hear us talk a lot about a sort of the role of digital humanities here at Michigan State University and what you know the value in, uh, D.H. is and where he sort of sees his place in that and how we can sort of use D.H. to expand our current conversations. You also hear us talk a little bit about uh, a project that was very close to me that Julian and I, along with um, Justin Weigard, uh, developed for the MSU library and, and a number of other really interesting uh, things. Julian's a really sharp guy. He knows so much about comics and comics history. And he's just a really great important voice uh, in those ongoing conversations. So I hope that you like listening in on this. I hope that you get something new and exciting out of it. And uh we'll see
1: you on the other side. So people are gonna recognize that I was there and I said something or did something. So I ain't sneaking anywhere. Uh, but but I am up to something. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Being up to something is a good way to be, though, right? I mean, aren't we all supposed to be up to something? I mean, if you're yeah, not up yeah, to something, exactly. I mean,
1: that, that's the problem. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, you're supposed to. Be, yeah, we're all supposed to be up to something. If you're not, what's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not living up to your contract.
0: <laughs> well, one of the one of the things you said in there that that struck me that I think is really important, especially for, you know, a program like this and, and thinking about, uh, sort of like what our work does, right. Is talking about public engagement in DH. And I think, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is sort of walking us through that because a, a lot of times for, for better or worse, um, I think there is, uh, a, a reputation in the humanities or there exists sort of a bias amongst students, um, or people that are outside of what we do, like, well, what are you doing with this information, right? Like what's the value of this, right? But I think DH offers us a really interesting avenue into that conversation because it it demands not just public engagement, but like practical sort of hands-on work that is applicable to any number of fields. I mean, and, and I'm one of those people, like a lot of us that makes the case that all of what we do in the humanities is practical because, it, it explains us, right. It helps us better reflect on and better understand what it means to be human beings. Um, but DH offers, offers us something a little bit different in that regard. So, so I wonder like, how do you, like when you're working with students or when you're thinking about your projects or you're thinking about sort of the collaborative nature of DH, I mean, how do we, how do you make those things really available for students? I mean, when we can talk a little bit about uh, the comics OER that we've developed here at MSU, but I just mean, even just in, you know, really small scale classroom type experiences, like how does that, how does that all sort of shape up? And then what do, what are our sort of expectations for that with students?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the things that we talk about in, um, in academia is That we want our students, that we're, that we're teachers and we want our students to have, um, I'm saying meaningful, but there's a different word I want to use, but we want them to have a a, a moment with like, like where they can sort of demonstrate that they've learned. Yeah. Right? Like they have an accessible moment where like they themselves know that they've learned something. And, and ultimately, I think one of the things about digital humanities that can be really meaningful is that almost every outcome that we might associate with digital humanities involves a kind of public demonstration of learning Mm -hmm. that the students can recognize. And that becomes like a really important element. And, you know, I think while we don't necessarily always understand it this way, Mm -hmm. almost everything that we do in academia is built on um, that relationship between instructor and student. And so, you know, when you when you can think about a kind of project-based approach in the classroom that gets the students engaged in, in material and, and contributing to, uh, as I often do, um, sort of like a public discourse through like a database or a sort of digital project, Um, what you're doing there is that you're sort of hopefully, you know, talking to them about things like knowledge creation, right? Like I often talk to students about metadata and how metadata is like um, a reality building tool. And like, that sounds crazy, but you have to understand that uh, information that's institutionalized is, is a choice, right? Like how you describe something in an institutional database represents how the next generation people will understand that thing. And so when you're talking to students, when I talk to students and we go to the library and we work with the librarians and we look at, and we look at like the doubling core system and we look at how it works and, you know, and I talk to them about like the difference between like quote unquote good information versus bad information and how, you know, I have this project called Critical Fanscape, which is a, a database project, right? But it's, it's, working with a corpus of material related to what uh, whatever class I'm doing it in. And and the goal when we're sort of describing things is to describe it in a way that is informed by their by a more sophisticated set of cultural inferences than just simply what it would be if it were just in a database when a library cataloger is putting in it. Because the library cataloger is basically like what you see is what you get. Like they're they're doing an, very best to describe it as best as possible based on the information they get at the time that it comes in. But that that's not the same thing as a kind of synthetic sort of analysis of what it might be in terms of a cultural artifact that's in conversation with a set of concerns that we can do if we're creating something as a digital artifact in a more specialized setting. Um, and that's true if, if they're looking at like in a critical fans case, my idea was always look at this very particular subset of the collection, which is publications about comics, which in a, you know in a collection that has 300 plus thousand objects, there are a lot of subsets. but the subset that's publication about comics is you know things like fanzines, like professional magazines about cartoonists. It's you know from all around, all around the world in different parts of the uh, historical period. And by thinking about that, you know, it really gets to this idea of popular culture, mm-hmm. right? Because it's fan, it's publications about comics. So it's people talking about the people who make comics, people talking about genre, about characters, right? You know, it's all these, there's a lot of possibilities in there that really intersect with like the stuff that we do. And um, so looking at that subset of material, through a lens in a particular class, like I mean, I I've done it um, two times because I do it once a year, uh, and 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 I'm not gonna do it um, this year because of COVID. Mulligan, um, well, it's a Mulligan year, a completely Mulligan year. Uh, but every time I do it, it's in the context of the class, and it's meant to enhance the learning or enhance the so investigative question that's guiding the class, right? So, so you know the the possibility that that set of questions that you you ask when you're creating a class and you're asking students to be collaborators and and, and co co investigators and you're asking them to think about these issues around how culture. Is presented and then how you institutionalize, you know, that sort of critical inquiry around describing an object. Those are all questions that you do when when you're you're doing it on your own, right? Like you're like you know, ultimately my goal is always like a kind of force amplifier, right? I can do this thing in class. We do it a few times in class, like you know that that corpus material to the class becomes like its own body of knowledge that I can step back from and go like, hey, what what is represented by this set of inquiries around publications about comics that we've done through these different set of like lenses? Like we've looked at superheroes in this particular collection that's in there. We've looked at like black comic book characters in this particular collection in there. We looked at like women in this particular collection. In there. And then I can like step back and go like, oh, there's this thing that I might want to try to do as a higher order. Kind of project,
0: right? well and when you do some when you're dealing with something like fanscapes too especially you know especially in the comics community with zines and, and all that sort of thing and zines are obviously not limited to comics but right you're also sort of demonstrating for them sort of the the bottom-up development of knowledge for a field or an identity or, or a culture or community especially something like comics that is a multi-billion if not multi-trillion dollar industry for you know um mega media conglomerates right. so like demonstrating that sort of that bottom-up sort of development of knowledge is seems to me like really crucial in helping students understand that it's not necessarily top-down and that they have a voice in these things and, and reshaping it and and by sort of parsing these ideas I mean is that is that is that a fair way to think through your approach to this I mean that's I mean that's my immediate thought
1: yeah, well, I, I do think that, right? I think that one of the things about zine, about fan cultures in particular, that they are bottom bottom up, right? Like they're indigenous, they're grassroots, right? And so thinking about them as a a coherent set of practices or trying to understand the coherent set of practices associated with an object, because zines are hyper-local, mm-hmm. right? And when when you start talking about fan culture, you're talking about cultures that are at once local, but also networked. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about um, thinking about fan cultures that way is that it does lend itself to a number of different kinds of digital analysis, right? Like, there's a lot of visualizations. Although, ironically, I haven't done a lot of visualizations. But there are a lot of visualizations that that are inherent. The thing about visualizations is, like, honestly, like I want to get more stuff in Critical Fanscape, but then I'll be like, okay, visualization. Because you know there's there's always this question of like the sizes of corpus and what you can <laughs> you have to have enough stuff in a corpus for it to actually be like a meaningful thing when you start visualizing it but in, but you can create collection based on a particular idea that's a sort of critical inquiry, and like that's its own meaningful thing because it does get at this idea of like well, how are these people doing it? why are these people doing it? What are the things that are uh, affecting people at the moment that they're doing it right like because every sort of critical creative project that especially grassroots, ad hoc, non-corporate becomes a window on the moment, the people, the places, the issues that were in in vogue at the time it was created, right? And you can see that a lot with fanzines, like they, um, with fan material, it is a very particular moment that every one of those things or objects represent.
0: Yeah, and, well, and... And especially in something like comics, you also get a window into the next generation of producers of that media. Right. Right, Which is true even, I mean, not just of the moment where zines were sort of um, the touchstone for the fan networks and fan communities, but, I mean, even now with podcasting, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, we both do this, and we both know plenty of people who were in podcasting that suddenly, like – Became professionals uh, <laughs> because of because of the connections that they made as a part of those networks, right? Yeah. So it's a it's a really sort of significant uh, sort of area of uh, or a significant discourse that's worth sort of parsing out. And as you point out, like not just understanding the circumstances, but of that particular moment, but gives us insight into the next moment in the moment after that. You know, like where do these people come from? Well there are networks that allow them to rise to certain positions of either prominence or power or both. And um, you know, who's participating in those or who are they excluding or including, you know, that that's all sort of relevant. there, really relevant there. Um, And it seems like a a critical fanscape type project gives not just students, but provides a a public sort of uh, view on, on how those things sort of mature over time.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I would like to, to think so, and um with, with, with that particular project, since it is sort of class-based, uh, you know, it, it, it works at its own pace, um, and, you know, uh, because it's early on in the project, like this, this next iteration was already gonna be really complicated, because I wanted to, Stop and assess, like, am I doing this right? Kind of thing, um, and uh, be mindful of procedures and processes related to like making making collections, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, that's that's a part of a, as you say, it's a part of a logic here, um, that hopefully is empowering for students, right? Like, um, I have a Facebook memory uh, pop up. Yesterday uh, that was the Zine show in um, uh, my 342 class and that zine that they made which was I, re- I replaced the paper you know the normal paper in the class with the project that was making this sort of critical reflective zine on characters of color mm-hmm. and that that was a very complicated exercise for for the students in part because instead of like, yeah, just write this sort of like paper on a black comic book character. I'm like, no, I want you to like look at a set of comic book characters. I want you to think about the typology represented by looking at those characters. And then I want you to put together like a zine yourself, there's a template that's exploring this sort of like question of typology that you've that you've discovered, right? Like you looked at these characters. So, you know, I asked them to think about three, three characters in, in, in conversation with each other. Um, and then finding the typology was often a challenge for them, right? Uh, because it was it wasn't asking them a single question about a single character, it was asking them, like, I want you to look at three characters that are black and and think about how those three characters that are black represent a kind of narrative about race and blackness in comics. Um, And that was super complicated, but I'm like, you know, my standard response, like, you're not writing a 20-page paper. right? (laughs) You're not not, writing, like, the the 12 or 15-page paper that is required. You know you were doing this the whole semester. We did it in stages, right? Like, like, okay, well, you know. Um, And they digitized that and that went into critical fanzine, but they also made the the zine, and we had a show. Yeah, well, I think that that's, I mean, to me, that's like one of the most important
0: elements of a lot of the work that that you do. And as I, you know, try to sort of emulate those things and do those things in my own classes, is is this uh, the practicality of it? Because that it's a project like that that allows the students to sort of develop a sense of voice and see a value in what they're doing. And I think it's you know, I, uh, I'm not jettisoning the the essay from my teaching, right? I think, I think I, you, we have to learn how to write and to communicate in in, in those kinds of ways, but, but I also. Recognize that that's not always the way in which our students communicate with one another, and it might not always be the way in which they uh, are best able to find their own voice and understand sort of the gravity of the work that they're doing and, and the questions they're asking and the answers that, that, that they come up with. Um, so having that sort of like tactile thing, whether it's, you know, even uh, whether it's the physical form of the zine or even just sort of digi- even digitizing it and like, letting them know that their ideas are now a part of an archive, right, is really crucial uh, to helping them sort of understand the weight and, and the value of what they're doing all the time. And the other thing I really like about uh, something like, like this as well is that it demonstrates sort of the ongoing nature of knowledge production, right? Like, like that once, the, once, once they leave us, um, they're not done, Right. And once they leave the, the institution, they're not done. And once they have a straight job, whatever that may be, you know, right. um, but, still doing it. yeah, it's not done. Right. Yeah. It's it's not done until you stop working. Um, and uh, so I think that 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 gives I don't know, I, I, I think it's I think it's a really sort of useful way to sort of develop the practical skills that are sort of ingrained within. Sort of the humanistic endeavors, right? And um, and projects like that give the students, you know, those those kinds of opportunities. Uh, it, and the other, and related to that, in thinking about landscapes, one of the things we've sort of uh, mentioned casually through the conversation so far is the is the OER that that you and I worked on or that we co developed for. Um, for the MSU library. So, so I think we should talk about that a little bit because that's, a, that's a, not only is that a living project as you describe it, but it's also, it's a, it's a multifaceted one too. It's not focused on just one area of inquiry, it, it allows access to multiple areas of inquiry. Right. So, um, so how does that, um, how does something like that sort of, Factor into your work as a scholar. I mean, I have a good sense of how that do, how it does that. Obviously, I mean, because I know okay. you. But, but I mean, how does that how does that factor into sort of your work as a scholar? And how does that sort of help drive the kinds of questions and inquiry you might ask students? Right. I mean, critical questions around race, but not just asking the questions, but finding outcomes for right. them. Right.
1: Right. You um, know, OER stands for open educational resource. Uh, it's sometimes referred to open electronic resource. Uh, you know, if you're in academia, you, you might hear the term, but never, you might hear the OER, but never hear it, uh, what those, those letters stand for, as I was pointed out to me a couple of days ago. What do you mean when you say that, right? Um, and for, uh, an institution, uh, department like ours, institution like ours, that has this very definitional collection of comics right like msu has the largest publicly available collection of comic books in the world right um if you're a researcher like a a seasoned researcher this is awesome but if you're um a normal person (laughs) that's really complicated like where do I start? I mean, it's it's similar how, like, people feel about comics. They don't know where to start. Like, where do I start? Re- you know, Batman has, it's up to, like, issue seven-something, 700 and something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't want to start at issue one, right? Like, where do I start, right? Um, for students who you are trying to cultivate a more sophisticated, critical understanding of culture, that's even more important. Like, where do you start? So, you know... The the origins of the OER are in a very basic set of ideas. Like, I was looking for a library guide for comics. Um, I was, at some point, quite sure I was just missing it because I'm like, I can't find it. Um, And I... Just finally asked one of the librarians, "Hey, where where's the lib guide for for comics at the library?" And she was like, "Oh, uh, we don't technically have one." And I was like, "Okay, wow, okay." Um, and then as we were doing, as you point out, you know, we have these research workshops in in uh, the English department. Which you have to apply for, and, you know, as a faculty member and you get graduate student collaborators. And so I applied to do a research workshop and I asked you and, um, Justin, and we came on and we were, we, we, we did it. And I, I, I wanted the creation of this open ele- uh, educational resource to be like one of the, the prime takeaways from this, right? And so, and the reason was that you know, I say comics ecosystem at MSU very deliberately because I think of it as an ecosystem. I don't think of it as like a program, right? Like like some 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 institutions may have comic studies programs, but uh, I think very seriously, that MSU has an ecosystem has very different parts that have come together. And are somewhat coordinated. And this part about the sort of critical inquiry, pedagogical and research narrative, uh, it's, it's hard to find sometimes. Uh, and so by having this, we can sort of center the the modes of inquiry and questions that, that we we know that we're engaged in, in in a place that people can see how we're we're thinking about. Right. So when you go to the OER, like the, 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 sections that are there, it is a little self-serving. Like, there's a section that's like the comics in the city. Well, you know who did that? I did that. Cause I'm like, well, I, you know, comics in the city is a thing for me. Racism in comics is a thing for me. Right. Like, um, but there's also the reality that there's a tremendous amount of material that exists on the, you know, quote unquote, wild, wild web that, we can cultivate and, and bring together in a way that provides, you know, a learner who's starting out or someone who even is like very developed in their work, a mode of, of inquiry, like a pathway that they can, you know, very quickly, you know, engage with and move from and, and do a lot of things with. And so it's a really important space as a kind of manifestation of a set of like visions around pedagogy and inquiry that are driving um, our work here, not not just simply my work, but like the work that you're doing, graduate students, a lot of our colleagues in other departments are doing I mean, like we ask people in other departments, like the Wolf, um, the Graphic Narratives Network to, to participate. And, so much of the work that you do that's intellectual work is sort of hidden, right? And it's incremental. And when you're doing this kind of stuff where you're doing things like creating a bibliography, right? And, you know, recognize that bibliographies are their own kind of critical work, right? Like they, they're never really done because like you, you create one and then you immediately find like, oh, I could have done a better job with that. But that was okay because your goal was to move the move the needle, right? Like you're 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 creating an infrastructure that is going to bring together uh, critical resources that you can take advantage of, but also might inspire other people. Like, oh well, this is a thing that I would I would suggest you add. And like, oh thanks, I you know if you had that list, this person would never would have thought that to tell me add this, right? Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's a machine that builds a machine, yeah. right? Like it's, it's a legitimate way to think that like the, the work of making this sort of open educational resource becomes a, a vehicle to cultivate more engagement both in the classroom and out of classroom, more research by bringing together um, some of the things that happen on campus, like when we have the keynote uh, speech at the MSU Comics Forum, we always record that. But up until now, where would you go to find it? Yeah. Right. Well, now you can go there because, like, there's a link right there. Right. Um, you know, we have a keynote scholar, and and there's reasons that that person is a keynote scholar, and you know, we can spotlight their work there. Um, you know, we, we are involved in projects and we are involved in, in discussions and we're not, we're not necessarily, you know, telling people that as coherently as we could. And so having a place where we can sort of bring and manifest, bring us together and manifest like, yeah, this is the thing that we're, that we're dealing with, right? Um, you know, I, I think about this around like the sort of critical conversations that we sort of sustain all the time, like being comics in translation or and, and translation or comics in the archive or comics in digital humanities, right? Like we we are literally doing that in discrete corners and we know but do we ever come together and be like, This is what I did this year, or this is how this is how my thing has evolved, or this is the thing these are people I've learned about and just having something that's alive and a driver of that and a vehicle for that is super helpful. Um, and again, structurally, we have this massive collection um, and, and size, the size of it draws a certain amount of attention, but you know, the potentialities around knowledge creation represented in it, That does take us cultivating uh, pathways in for students. Uh, In particular, I think, you know, long term honor theses, master's theses, you know, the students that are here can take advantage of that in a way that before it was, before it was existed, they they couldn't necessarily easily take advantage. And ease of use uh, for especially undergraduate. Learners is is important, right? Like they're going to to grow in their thinking and their process uh, with a tool like that.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things I really like about the way that you describe all of this, and it's something I've adopted in my own way of thinking about these things, is is referring to it as you know what we what we do here as an ecosystem, as a living thing, right? And I think that's a much better as you point out. I think that's a much better way to describe it than as a program because a program sounds finite. <laughs> uh, I mean, you finish it, and you're like, okay, I'm done now, and, and you move on, right? An ecosystem doesn't suggest that at all. It, it suggests, uh, you know, a multiplicity of ideas and networks and, and sort of other living organisms that come together to create this also living organism that, you know, builds upon itself, right, or ideally builds upon itself. And I think that that's, that's so sort of central to what, one of the, I mean, to a lot of things, but it's also really central to what we've been talking about with this notion of, you know the, the ongoing nature and the ongoing project of humanistic study and and the inherent practicality of these things, you know, not just inside the classroom but but well beyond. And in, in a really and for me a, a delightful way, also reminds me a lot of what you're talking about too with just the very notion of fanzines, right? I mean, fanzines in and of themselves are avenues for networks and communities and people with you know, like minds to have access to a form of media or a subset of ideas or uh, or a particular sort of sliver of a community. Right. Whether that's a music fanzine, a comics fanzine, a film zine, you know, it doesn't make a difference. It provides it provides a perspective, right, a particularly constructed perspective um, that uh, allows access to to knowledge and not just knowledge learning but knowledge creation right because anyone can participate in those things um and so it makes it makes a project like you know you talked you mentioned earlier sort of like the cyclical nature of a lot of these things but it makes a project like your critical fanscapes one sort of fits so neatly and sort of you can i can very clearly now like map like or have like a vague outline of like what goes on in Julian's brain, like to figure out like the like how all of these things like sort of work together, right? Like how you can always be up to something because all, <laughs> of, all of these ideas they work together so nicely, right? Whether it's yeah. whether it's zines or OERs or DH, I mean, all of these things they are about networks of living, growing ideas.
1: Um, right. Yeah. And then what what are the the forces that are shaping those networks? Yeah. Like they those become um uh, uh important points of like framing right so um, you know i i'm i'm one of those people um that that reads like how to do you know how to be more efficient things right? like, like like how to be a better academic like how to get like i'm always fascinated by like um, cuz i don't think of myself this way but I'm always fascinated by like academics that like do a lot of stuff. Like like, I know people all used to do so much, but I'm like, I really actually feel like I don't get a lot done. And part of the reason I feel that way is because like I I look at people who get a lot of stuff done. And I'm like, how the hell did they do that, right? And so there's an element of like I don't understand how this person can write a book. A year or a book in every 16 months, and like I really struggle with like an essay, yeah. right? Like, like what are they doing? Like, how are they doing that? Um, so, like, I'll you know periodically I'll read like how to be more efficient, um, and at the end of all that reading, you you come back with like you got to figure out the way that works for you, yeah. like that's, after synthesizing all those experts, I'm like. You got to figure out the way that works for you yeah. um, and you also have to figure out like what's your goal and i and I do distinguish a little bit about goal because as I say like I do think about this in terms of like um, a public scholarship model and so what are the objects that you're creating that are meaningful are questions you need to ask yourself like what is what is your product um, gonna be if you want to use like a, a kind of like corporate like is your product like Um, the most prestigious academic unit, which is a book, which is what it is. Like, don't, don't lie to yourself in academia. The most prestigious product unit is book. Um, and that's an old, (laughs) that's an old idea. Uh, and you, y'all know that. And when people don't acknowledge that, it's a little like, what are you talking about? Of course. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Right. Um, is that unit, the prestigious, the most impactful unit? The answer is no. Also not a lie. I can, we can have an argument, come talk to me later, but the answer is no, right? Like the, the academic run of a book is like 400 copies. Uh, I can show you a podcast that I make, which I feel like honestly I could do a better job with, that has more than 400, you know, <laughs> listeners, right? Like, so like uh, you know, there's research, the average academic article read by one person, average, right, numbers here, the average one is read by one person. That means there's a bunch of read by more than one person, but sadly, some that are read by nobody, right? Like, so, you know, uh, impact versus prestige versus, you know, these questions of, what does society need? Like society actually needs at some level, more nuanced, textured narratives about culture to help them navigate what's happening in culture. And so um, it's not just simply that when you're working with students in the classroom, um, they're working on a grade and they're doing a public administration loss, they're also becoming ambassadors to a more sophisticated understanding about culture. And they're gonna take that away. When when they leave the classroom, they will still remember, yeah, I, this professor made me like navigate typology in blackness and combo characters. And they might be doing something totally different. Making some kind of widget and they go like, you know, like, you know, there's a cultural reference. To keep it in mind. When you call this widget this, like that's gonna offend somebody. So let's call it something else, right? Like you know, they're gonna have a discussion that's not gonna be about comics, but we'll be informed by that class where they're gonna be like, "Let's slow down and think about this, right?" Like, you know, um, and then that will happen years from now, far away, and I'll never know, but I'll, I want to believe when i on my deathbed that that's gonna happen.
0: But that's a part of the ecosystem, though, right? Like you plant. I mean, in, in all seriousness, I mean that's that's a part of the ecosystem of not just like what you know what you do and what we do and but that's, that's how high impact ideas are born, right? Like that you, you give students the opportunity to, to make, uh, to make publicly accessible ideas. Right. And that, and that the public sort of understanding and the way that the public translates ideas is important. And how do you generate change and, and, and make meaningful efforts to sort of recuperate or recover or reconcile different things? Well, you have to do those hard things right now and recognize that they exist within that living space. Um, and you know, I think that that's, I think that's exactly what you have to be able to do.
1: Yeah. And it, and it's an important, you know, it's an important part of, I think all academics, um, practice that they, you know, they figure out like that, that, um, that balance, and when you're in digital humanities, when you when you do quote unquote DH, um, the interdisciplinary interdisciplinary nature of it means that like you're you're making a thing that's not a chicken and not a duck,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And um, one conversation that I had years ago that really was impactful for me was I was talking to a colleague, and she was like, "Well, you got to find your people. You got to find people." Uh, who, who understand what you're doing. Because often when you're academic and you're doing something that's n- even slightly non-normative, you are no longer, you're no longer fitting in your department. Because departments are, they're by default, um, super stable traditional things because they are, right? Like, and when you start, when you start to do something a little off, um it becomes complicated because people are like, well, you're not doing it like we did it because there's a, just, you know, generational element to it. And you're not, you know, in a sort of practical way, you might not be publishing in the places that we published. Right. Um, but that idea that you're in conversation with people across, across disciplinary lines or in, in different communities or in like, and and you're bringing something from those people back to your people and they're taking something from you and taking it back to their people, or you're creating this thing in, in the middle that is interesting and, and informative. Um, that's why you do it and that's why it continues, right? Because if, if, if in fact, like the anxiety that's articulated by like, you know, uh, the older people in your department were true, then interdisciplinary stuff would stop. But everyone instinctively understands that, like, yeah, coming together and coming up with something different and new is not a bad idea. What they struggle with is finding a place to put that new thing. But they do eventually, right? Like, they there are things that were, like, controversial and new in the history of the world, and, like, now they're normal. And we don't we remember how controversial and new they were. Uh and in academia, we're on the cutting edge of that. Yeah. Like all the time. Right? Like there will always be another thing that is disruptive in academia, because like your job is a thing. And so like there's always a person going like I think we should do this. And they're on the bleeding edge, right? They're on they're on the bleeding edge of what is established and there's a space for that. But at the same time, because we're teaching where it's a long line. It's a long line. There's a person on the bleeding edge who is doing all the stuff that's very cool. And, and, you know, within our sort of academic spaces, we have a ways to recognize that. Like, I'm always mindful of the fact that a person on the bleeding edge is like an army. The person who's on the bleeding edge is doing recon, but they are not disconnected from the people in the main body of the army who might be doing some very basic stuff, right? It's still the same army. <laughs> like, they're not, they're, they did not change size because they went on recon, right? And so people on the bleeding edge should not be seen as in opposition to the people back here, you know, in our analogy, like, doing the sort of basic ed course, right? Like, instead, they should be in conversation. So, like, how are you, and you, when you're on the bleeding edge, you kind of have to, be mindful of that, right? Like you, you talk to your colleagues, like, I, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about uh, digital humanities. This is why it matters in terms of like your students and your stuff, right? Like, if you don't have that conversation, I think you are missing an opportunity, and you know? I'm always mindful of that. Um,
0: I think those are the harder conversations to have, too.
1: Right? Yeah, they are. They are. They're super hard
0: conversations. Because if- if you have these conversations with uh, with your undergraduate students, or even with entry level graduate students, I mean, there seems to be a level of understanding there because they are out there living in the space where these ideas are accessible to them, um, and and uh, and can sort of understand that, right? Whereas someone who's more entrenched is naturally maybe not averse, but uh, going to have a harder time sort of making those connections because that's not where they came from that's not how ideas were made of might not be how ideas were made available to them 30 years ago
1: you know that's there's some truth to that Um, as a person who you know I'm I'm a full professor and um, you know I'm I'm not quite sure who the audience for this conversation is um, but but when you're a full professor you You've sort of gone through all of it right like you you've gone through all the the assessments and stuff and um one of the things about academia that's interesting is that in a lot of other fields, as you go further up the ladder and you get promoted um, it becomes you know every promotion it becomes clear that you've got more responsibility mm. Mm-hmm. Right? You get paid more, but you also have more responsibility. So like at some level, you know, think about it in the corporate world. When you're like a worker in a warehouse, you're not paid very much. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily have like a tremendous amount of responsibility. Like the, 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 the future of the company probably does not rest on if you show up that day. Right? Like you're, you're a in a warehouse, right? I mean, yes, there's a language around corporatization that says, like, we're all members of the team, but, like, realistically, and you know this, if I don't go to work today, that warehouse is still going to be there. If you were the chairman of a corporation and you don't show up for work, then it's different. Right? And in academia, (laughs) ironically, the further up you go, like, the, the sense that you're freed from certain responsibilities is really, really clear. And, um... That's not exactly what's going on, but there's a rhetoric like that's what's going on, and so when you're having these conversations, uh, it, it becomes it becomes complicated because like the culture of the organization has signaled different things, right? And we can talk endlessly about my my opinions of like tenure and promotion. Um, like I love having tenure. I'm thankful of being promoted but, you know, it's it is it is a really stressful situation and I think tenure is important but I also recognize how um, as you say like, you know, as you go further and further to the process the level of alienation you might have felt going through it really affects how you're recognizing narratives coming from people earlier in the process, right? And I'm always mindful of that, right? Like because you're trying to balance out like your own experiences and the sort of feedback you got as an academic versus that sort of bleeding edge, new person who's thinking about new ideas. And in fact, it's being incentivized to be thinking about new ideas, right? Like that's part of what gets them moving forward. Like they're supposed to be on the bleeding edge, especially at a place like MSU. So like, you know, if you don't match those those things up, like, if you don't manage them, then you get in this sort of, like, almost, like, a fugue state where, like, the parts are, they're all buzzing in place, but it might not necessarily be, like, synergy, um, which is his own set of conversations, maybe. Uh, but, you know, the ultimately, I always, like, try to use when something's really complicated, I tend to s- default to really simple metaphors. Uh, we make donuts. We have to graduate students. They, they need to learn. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the level is, like, at some level, they need to graduate. If they're a graduate student, they need to graduate and they need to get a job. If they do a bunch of other stuff, but they don't graduate and they don't get a job, failed. Yeah. Right? Like, failed, right? Like, they might have, like, marched in a thing. They might have, like, spoke truth to power. Are they employed? no, mm. well, yeah, right, like, don't finish, don't get a job, eventually, people will be like, what do you do there? They're not going to care about anything else you said or did. they would be like, you know, you don't graduate people, they don't get jobs. They're not going to care. Yeah. Right? Um, same thing with undergraduates, like, did they learn something? Did, 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 do they understand what they learned? Right, like, if they don't understand that they learn something, ooh, because <laughs> they're like they're a consumer. If they walk away like I have no idea what I just did, then mm, yeah. probably not good.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: and that's just the truth. Yeah, and and you know, and that
0: conversation gets even more complicated, especially as you think about things like like getting jobs, like getting like what it means to get a job is rapidly changing because of our moment and the moment that's we've been sort of either, however you want to frame it, either building towards or declining towards for, you know, the past however many decades or years. Like, I mean, to understand like what getting a job is, is a different thing now. Right. I mean, and, and having to embrace alternative um, means of employment besides the, the gold standard tenure track job somewhere. Right. I mean, that's what I want. That's what that's what you have. I mean, that's what we all that's what we all, you know, so many of us want. But coming to an understanding that that cannot be the only metric for success is a difficult thing in the same way. It's really difficult to understand. It's difficult for a lot of folks to understand that. Hey, look. You're right. The book is the gold standard for academic prestige, but there are other ways of generating knowledge and, and having an impact. Um, and 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 making meaningful contributions to just sort of the world of ideas um and, and that's that's a that's a really tough thing for that's a really high hurdle for for a lot of people um and understandably so absolutely understandably so um but that that that's a tough that's a tough thing especially when when we have institutions that are trained to develop certain kinds of products
1: uh, right yeah, yeah. You're right. And, you know, these are conversations that I think are sharper in digital humanities because of the nature of the field. Yeah, Like, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Where, you know, where are the venues for it? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they've developed over a relatively short period of time because like, the field is relatively young. Um, it's people from lots of different disciplines doing lots of different things. Uh, you know, and, and it's rapidly evolved. Right, like even in a decade, like I would argue that like some of the things I heard in 2010 related to digital these people would not. They would. They they do not cotton to them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. They don't believe it. Uh, everything from like how much online stuff because the online environment has changed so much. Right. And and that in itself is a conversation. When we say public, what do we mean? Yeah. What publics are you serving? Um, That is a conversation that we kind of have to have, like, you know, public humanities is a a long, complicated legacy. Um, And for certain disciplines, history is one of them, that legacy of the public as an important part of the discipline is is something that people still talk about in a very real way. Like, are you a public intellectual? Mm -hmm. Like there's a long legacy of this. Um, But you know, what publics? We don't talk about it enough. Like what publics? Because you can be a public intellectual and not necessarily be talking to every public. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting set of questions, and um, we just have to be mindful that, we, that we're that we talking about those those questions um, when we're talking to our students, when we're talking to our colleagues, uh, when we're doing our work, right? Because we're training people to be the next generation of scholars. Um, and you know, on the one hand, you want them to have some understanding of, like, the past practices that matter, but on the other hand, you also recognize that there is a very real possibility that they're gonna need skills and they're gonna be doing things that previous generation did not do and did not understand, does not understand. Right. So how do you make space for that evolution is a real question.
0: Yeah. I think I think that's a great way to sort of wrap this up, to be thinking about the ways in which we can make space for that evolution. And where do we go from here? And, and thinking about the ecosystem of our ideas and our work and how that builds upon itself. So thank you so much for yeah. for, for joining me on this episode, Julian. It's great to talk to you. Great to see your face again. And uh, take care of yourself, man. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here at Prerequisites. This episode of the program is supported by the Russell B. Nye Fellowship for Interdisciplinary Curricular Enhancement in English from the Michigan State University Department of English. You can find out more about MSU English, including graduate and undergraduate programs, at english.msu.edu. This episode of Prerequisites was written, produced, and engineered by Zach Krusey. Until next time, this is Dr. Zach Cruzi. Good day.